Before we open the word this afternoon, I do want to take just a few minutes, as we've done many months, and pray that the Lord might grant us the, the privilege of being part of, of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ into a neighborhood around us that needs it dearly through the, the ministry of a local church. So let's take some time and, and pray for that here this afternoon. Father, we have just spent time around the table remembering the great sacrifice that you initiated and that your Son, our Savior, accomplished when he went to the cross on our behalf. Father, it goes beyond our comprehension that you would send your own Son to die for sinners, that those who had rejected you, that those were, that were hostile in rebellion against you, would be loved enough by you that you would sacrifice your own son. And yet, that, Father, is clearly what you explained to us in your word, you did. You sent your son to die for us. And, Father, we've been privileged in that you have moved in our lives so that we at various times heard that gospel message, that good news, the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins. They rose victorious, breaking the, the bondage that sin had upon us. And that, Father, we are now able to place our faith in him, have ourselves declared righteous by you, and stand boldly in your presence. Father, we are awed by the simple fact that you have allowed us to be men and women that heard and responded to that gospel. We know in the scripture that that is all accomplished according to your power and your might by your spirit. But Father, all we have to do is look around us and we can see that there are many who have not had that privilege. They have not heard the gospel. They live in areas where the gospel is not proclaimed. They live in families where the rebellion has had victory for generations. Even worse, they live in places where false messages have been proclaimed. Messages that give false hope because there is no answer outside of Christ. Father, all we have to do is look a few miles to the south of us and we see a neighborhood that is the epitome of, of that situation. We see men and women who have no hope. We see houses that, from what we read, are destroyed by, by drugs and by other forms of, of dependency and by hopelessness. Hopelessness that cannot be conquered by anything other than the God. We're coming back to our series in Genesis, and as we do, I want us to recognize that, that we do not always see things the same way. You may recognize that easily, that we don't always see things the same way, but I'll just give you one example. Do you remember the, the dress that, that broke the internet back in 2015? I mean, 2015 is ancient history, some, but you may remember this dress. There was a picture of a dress that was posted with the simple question of what color is the dress? And pretty soon the internet broke because what seemed like a simple question did not have a simple answer. There was great debate as some people saw the dress as being white and gold and other people saw that same picture, the same dress as being black and blue. And all of us know white and gold and black and blue are very different colors. For the record, the dress looked white and gold to me and yet it turns out that the dress truly was black and blue. 
It's been several years since that, that picture appeared on the internet, but, but scientists are still debating why was the dress seen in different colors. This wasn't a trick of technology. It wasn't that the picture was being adjusted on people's screen. There was no trickery going on. Everyone was seeing the same picture. What scientists have determined is that people's brains were processing the picture in different ways. That the answer that scientists are leaning towards now, and I only say that because there isn't a consensus yet in the scientific community about this phenomenon, but the, the, the consensus seems to be going towards that our brains were automatically making subconscious assumptions about the information the picture gave our brains. They, and some of that would be things like the lighting and the shadows, and, and our brains would be making subconscious assumptions about if the shadows and lightings are this way, then that means that the color is shifting here instead of there. And we know that light causes colors to look different, you know, change and shade and, and shadows and things. So the assumptions that we were making in our subconsciousness was causing us to interpret the dress, the dress differently. In essence, we were subconsciously blocking out different wavelengths of the color spectrum, saying that the shadows mean it cannot be this color, so it must be this. Even knowing all that, when I look at the dress, I still see white and gold. I cannot see black and blue when I look at it. And I know the facts that the dress truly does represent black and blue. In fact, pictures have been posted on the internet of the same dress in different lighting, in just different scenario, and it's clearly black and blue. We don't see things the same. When it comes to the picture of the dress here on the internet, it's an interesting phenomenon. It's something that scientists can discover, but in the end, it's not that critical. Well, when it comes to looking at activities of God and seeing things differently, more significant matters are at stake. As we come back this afternoon to our series in Genesis, we're going to look at what happens when we see things of God differently. Here in this series, God is tracing his promises through the lifetime of Isaac. You may recall, I mentioned at the outset when we started this segment of our, of our study in Genesis, the series through Isaacs, that, that we'll discover that Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, really play a more predominant role in the section than Isaac, even though it's the story of Isaac's life. In fact, the, the section itself started with the birth of the twins, and, and it was followed immediately, you may recall, with the transfer of the birthright from Esau to Isaac, right? I mean Esau to Jacob, rather. We also saw at the beginning struggle developed between these two, Esau and Jacob. There's tension with the, in the family. The, the bulk of the section really deals with Jacob and Esau. Two weeks ago, we, we began looking at the first 11 verses of Genesis 26, and surprisingly, Genesis 26 is almost entirely about Isaac. The, the sons did not enter into the events at all in the initial verses. They, they did not make any appearance, nor do they show up at all today. Uh, what's front and center in this chapter is the promises of God that he made to Abraham that are being passed along to Isaac. When Abraham's father, or Isaac's father, when Abraham died, most of the promises that God had given him were either unfulfilled or only at best partially fulfilled. It wasn't that God had failed to deliver on the promises, it's just that, that the promises that God made to Abraham are much broader than could be fulfilled in a single generation. These are things that, that will happen beyond one lifespan throughout all of human history, really. 
Isaac is the link to the promises God made to Abraham to the next generation. In the first 11 verses, God specifically reiterated the promise to Isaac. We saw that in those verses. And God assured Isaac that he would be with Isaac and would bless Isaac. Now, you may recall in those same 11 verses, it did not take Isaac long to put the promises into jeopardy. Um, A famine caused Isaac to live among the Philistines near the edge of the promised land in the area called Gerar. And fearing for his own life, Isaac attempted to pass his wife, Rebekah, off as his sister. Uh, Providentially, the the king of the Philistines happened to look out the window and he saw Isaac behaving in a very unbrotherly fashion with his his wife and recognized that Isaac was deceiving them, calling her his sister. He got called out for it, and through that process, God preserved the the promises he had given Isaac by causing this Philistine king to issue a decree of protection on both Isaac and Rebekah. Well, tonight, or this afternoon, I say tonight, automatically, this afternoon we're going through the the remainder of the chapter. God has promised that, that he will bless Isaac, and in the rest of the chapter we see evidence of how God is going to do that. We're going to see evidence of God's faithfulness, that God is faithful to the promises he makes. But as we see that, we'll also observe that not everyone looks at God's blessings the same way. We'll observe the ramifications that come about when, when those who experience God's blessings in the sinker's world run up against those who are not experienced God's blessings because they're sinners in the sin-cursed world. The view of God's blessings will not be the same. But as we look at that, we also learn how believers should respond to these things in this world. From the early part of the chapter, we know Isaac is living in Gerar, in that land of the Philistines. And we're going to pick up here in verse 12. In verses 12 through 17, we have the immediate results of blessing. Look at verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy, for he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us. For you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Now, in this chapter, Moses specifically draws a lot of comparisons between Abraham and Isaac. He's showing that that there's a lot of similarities. Um, The goal, remember, for Moses is is teaching the people of Israel as as they're moving towards the promised land. They're they're heading out there after they've been rescued from Egypt. They're forming up as a new nation. And and, and Moses is trying to teach the, the people that God's treatment of Isaac is really a continuation of God's treatment of Abraham. And and Isaac is that link in the chain that connects the nation now in the wilderness to the promises that God gave Abraham. That comparison begins immediately here in verse 12. Much as Abraham had prospered while living with the Gentiles, Isaac prospered as well. 
he settled in Gerar long enough to, to plant crops. Um, and remember, they're semi-nomadic at this time, but they, people at times would settle down in a region and there was some farming begun. Agricultural crops were being produced and Isaac here settles long enough in Gerar to plant crops of some kind and his crops yield a great produce, a hundredfold, we're told. Isaac came to Gerar, according to verse 1, because there was famine in the land. The famine drove him from the location where he had been living down to this region that wasn't experiencing such a famine. And here in the midst of famine in the surrounding area, Isaac has a crop with a hundredfold bounty. A hundredfold bounty is always noticeable, but especially in these conditions. And, and, and just in case we miss the point, look at verse 12 there when Moses adds the final point. He gets this hundredfold crop and we're told, and the Lord blessed him. We're supposed to make, Moses wants to make sure that that connection is explicit. This is God's blessings on Isaac. In fact, the Lord blessed Isaac to the point where we're told he became extremely wealthy. Moses makes the point in verse 13 by, by really in the original repeating the word for great. Uh, our English translations kind of brought in now a little bit, but a literal translation of, of the Hebrew would go along the lines of something like this, that the man became great and continued to grow greater until he became very great. Moses is kind of punching that, that note a little bit. This is a major blessing from God. The Lord had promised they would bless Isaac, and here's immediate evidence that God is doing precisely that. The Lord is blessing Isaac with great material wealth. Of course, while Isaac was enjoying material wealth as generated by God's blessing, not everyone viewed the blessing the same way. The Philistines envied him. Verse, verse 14 is not a mild statement. When, when we're told that how the Philistines responded, it's not a mild statement when, we're, when it says the Philistines envied him. The, the word that Moses uses there for envy, it's a word that means intense jealousy. A, a jealousy that, that leads to actions. You might think of a more familiar occasion when this word is used. Um, this is the word that's used when Joseph's brothers envied him to the point of selling him to slavery. A strong jealousy. They, and remember, the only reason they sold him into slavery was so they'd avoid murdering him. That's how strong their envy was. That's this word. Uh, uh, what we're to understand is there's a great bitterness here developing between the Philistines and Isaac because God's blessing Isaac. Same event, but they're looking at it very differently. The immediate action that the Philistines took was uh, attempting to hinder the ongoing prosperity of Isaac. They, they, they reduced his access to water. In, in this country, both crops and herds are extremely dependent on, uh, on water sources and access to water sources. Isaac now has several flocks and herds. He needs access to water. Isaac knew of several water sources because his father's servants had dug several wells in the region. Now, a well, when they say dug a well, a well could be a hole that was dug into the dry waterbed that, that just went deeper and deeper until eventually in a waterbed they, they reached the water table down below where the water sunk in after the, the stream stopped flowing. 
So it could be a hole dug like that, what we think more of a traditional type well, or it could be a hollowed out hole that was lined with plaster that, that then served as a massive cistern whenever rain did come, clucked water. Either way, it's a, a hole of some kind that was dug. The, each type of well required digging in, in the dry land. So Abraham, Isaac's father, servants, had dug a lot of these wells in this region when Abraham lived here. Isaac knew where those were, but to prevent access to those wells, the Philistines caved them in. They, they knocked in the, the dirt. By the way, if you look at verse 15 and, and notice that, that Moses mentions Abraham his father. He says that in verse 15, again we'll find in verse 18. Likely that, that reference has a dual purpose, that, or that statement, Abraham his father. It, that phrase hints that there's a parallel at play here between Isaac and Abraham. And what's happening to Isaac is like what happened to Abraham. But it also demonstrates Isaac has a valid claim to this water. His father dug the wells. He should inherit them from his, his father. The Philistines are wronging Isaac through their actions. The, the degree to which Isaac is wrong increases now as Abimelech responds to the actions of his people caving in the, the wells on Isaac. The king responds to that by expelling Isaac from the land. Isaac is told, go away from us. He's wronged, and the king says, okay, go away. Again, I want us to remember that Moses is writing this account for Israel as they're traveling in the wilderness. What he's teaching them is, is that as a people, God expects certain things of them, and they can anticipate certain things of others. It, it's significant that the only other time Moses uses the word we have translated in, in verse 16 is powerful. When, when Abimelech says, go away, you are too powerful for us. The only other time Moses uses that word is in Exodus. He uses it in the first chapter of Exodus. It, it shows up in verse 7 and, and verse 20 in Exodus chapter 1. And it's used to describe how numerous and mighty Israel becomes in Egypt after Joseph. And then a, a form of the word is used in verse 9 of Exodus 1 when Pharaoh says his reason for enslaving the Israelites is because they are mightier than we. That similar wording to what Abimelech uses here in verse 16 is, is intentional to teach the people of Israel why they've experienced what they've experienced in, in Egypt. It's consistent with what always happens to the people of God when God has chosen to bless his people. Those who are outside the people of God respond with hostility. Now, Isaac responds to this seemingly unfair demand from Abimelech in a certain way as well. How does Isaac respond? Well, verse 17 says he departed. He moved on. He, he doesn't protest the demand. He doesn't complain about the unfairness. He just quietly consents to the demand and moves further out into the valley. Now, there are certainly elements that we could focus on even in these first verses, and we could find application to our lives as people of God, living among people who are not the people of God. But I want to move on. Verse 18, um, we have the ongoing challenge of blessing. It's not just a one-time event. Here's an ongoing challenge. Follow along with me picking up in verse 18. 
Then Isaac dug, dug again the wells of water, which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too, so he named it Sitnah. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth, for he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Apparently from the Philistine perspective, they viewed the, the covenant of peace that they had made with Abraham as ending when Abraham died. It did not continue in their minds to Isaac. Rather, they, they seek to make water inaccessible to Isaac instead of recognizing his right to the water. But Isaac, he just calmly redigs the wells that, that had been collapsed by the people. He, he does assign the same names to the well that his father does. That, that is a, a slight exertion of his entitlement to them. But beyond that, he doesn't do anything. And, and when they keep fighting over it, Isaac goes on, and his men digs, dig a new well. Next, they, they dig this new well, and as additional sign of, of God's blessing, they discover a new source of fresh water. It, it's a well of flowing water, we're, we're told there in verse 19. That, that means that this was a discovery of an underground spring, a, a most valuable type of water in, in that arid region, an underground spring that's flowing. And the problem was, the people of Gerar, the, the Philistine herdsmen, they immediately laid claim to this water. That, that echoes a little bit what Abraham experienced with the herdsmen of Lot when, when there was contention over water between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. Abraham gave in. Well, Isaac uses a wordplay based on the idea of contention to assign a name. He, the, the name Essek is, in Hebrew is a wordplay on contention, but apparently makes no further attempt to, to retain ownership of the well. And since he and his herds still need water, he has his men dig a second new well. Again, God blesses, and they find water. There, there's no mention of a flowing spring this time, but it was water nonetheless. It's still water. And again, Isaac's blessing leads, I mean, God's blessing on Isaac leads to a contention with the herdsmen of Gerar. Isaac uses another word play to name the well. This time he picks a, a word that is related to the verb to oppose, and, and he uses that name to, to name the, the, the well, indicating that he's opposed by, by the Philistines. And the pattern repeats one more time. Isaac moves on, has his men dig. They move further along. They dig another well, and once more God blesses them with discovery of water again in this arid region. Finally, there's no one else around. He's moved far enough out into the remote area that, that there's no one left to contend with him over the water. So Isaac gives this third well a name that, that means room or, or open space. Now, we may miss the significance of, of all the water that Isaac found. I, I mean, after all, when we want water, we go to a faucet, we turn our, our, our handle, and water flows out. It's not a big deal, is it, to, to get water? Well, consider the fact here, Isaac is digging in land where water is very sparse. This is an arid region. Water is not plentiful at all. 
And now consider the fact that he's digging a land where people had traveled back and forth for generations. Yes, we think of Isaac as ancient history, but there were still generations of people traveling through this area. Water was scarce. It was highly valued. We would expect that if water was easy to find, it would have been found long before Isaac comes on the scene. And yet three times his men dig new wells and strike water. God is clearly intervening according to his promises. Like I said, we may miss that point because for us to find water, we just have to find a tap to, to turn the handle. We may miss the point, but Isaac and Moses certainly did not. As Isaac states here in the final line of verse 22, the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. The evidence of the wells capped off by, by this final well without any conflict, that, that demonstrates that the God is ensuring prosperity in accordance to his promise. We could even go so far as to understand that the reason Isaac kept moving, the reason that Isaac kept digging is because this is what Isaac expects of God. God says, I will be with you. God promised that he would bless him. So Isaac, expecting those blessings, just kept peacefully moving along and digging a new well. Based on the promises God had made, Isaac expected fruitfulness. So Isaac is receiving the Lord's blessing, but, but the comparison Moses is making with Abraham is not finished yet. Next comes the renewed assurance of blessing, verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. After Isaac had separated from Lot, the, the Lord spoke to him, re, renewing the promises that he had made to Abraham once more, giving a, a verbal renewal of the promises. And now Isaac, has, Isaac goes to the same place after he's had conflict with Philistines. We're, we're not told why. It, you know, he had the well, but now he moves to this area of Sheba. Apparently, the famine's ended because this is where Isaac had been living when the famine started. And as soon as he returns to Beersheba area, God speaks to him again. Verse 24, the Lord reiterates the promises that he gave back in verse 3 and 4 to Isaac. By now, those were at least months, if not even years earlier in Isaac's life. Yet the core of the promises are the same. The, the slight difference is this time there is a little more emphasis on, on the Lord's presence, the I am with you aspect. Isaac's been experiencing that for months and years now as he's moving and digging and receiving crops and finding water. He's experienced the Lord's blessing. Now he's assured by God of his continued presence. I am with you. We can also notice here that Isaac is reminded that the blessings of God will extend to his descendants for the sake of the Lord's servant Abraham. Isaac is the link in the middle. It's going to your descendants for this father, Abraham. The Lord's servant. The promises are flowing through Isaac from one generation to the next. God significantly refers to Moses here as my servant, or as Abraham, rather, as my servant, because God also refers to Moses many times as my servant. 
I don't want us to lose sight of the fact Moses is writing this while the people are traveling around the wilderness. God refers to Moses as my servant several times to the Israelites while they're in the wilderness, tying Moses here to Abraham, another one who was my servant. The only other person in, in, in the Pentateuch in Moses' books called my servant was Caleb. If you remember Caleb, the one spy that uh, went along with Joshua, the other one that, that went along and said, we can conquer the land, we don't have to worry about the, the power of the people there, trusted God to deliver the promised land to Israel. Caleb is also called my servant after that point. So when, when Moses writes here, for the sake of my servant, that does not mean that Abraham somehow earned divine blessing. Rather, what it means is that the God made a commitment to Abraham. And because of that commitment from God, blessings are assured. The, the implication to, to Israel as they're wandering around the wilderness is, is they should recognize that the divine commitments that God made to the patriarchs and the divine commitments that God made to Moses at Mount Sinai are secure because God was the one who made them. Isaac certainly recognized these truths because he responds here to God's assurance of continued blessing with worship. And we, we see worship in the response there as he builds an altar, much as Abraham had done in the very same situation there at Beersheba. We also see Isaac's faith in that he settles there and digs another well. All of this shows his determination that he will remain in the land. We can even say that, that this demonstrates his determination to remain the object of God's favor. God said, if you remain in the land and, and you are faithful, I will bless you with these things. Well, Isaac wants to remain the one who's receiving God's favor. He, he's going to settle down and stay right where God had assured him that he would experience God's blessing and presence. So, moving on, finishing out our text for tonight, verses 23 through 30, or 26 rather, through 33, give us the ongoing evidence of blessing. Blessing, 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 blessing. Every section here is showing us blessing. Verse 26. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzath and Picol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will, not, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have, done you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord." Then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug, and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Shippah. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. By now, the, the name Abimelech should be very familiar to us. You, you may recognize the name Pekol as well. Back, back in uh, Genesis 21, it was Abimelech and Pekol who came to make a covenant with Abraham. Now we have individuals by the same name seeking a covenant with Isaac. In, in fact, this verse is one of the reasons that scholars think that Abimelech 
may be a, a title rather than a name, kind of like Pharaoh is the title for the king of Egypt, Abimelech may be the title for the king of the Philistines. They, they suggest that because it, it's just possible, there, there's decades now between Abraham and Isaac, it's just possible that a king could live that long, but it's very, very unlikely that a commander of the army would still be in charge of the military might in, a, in old age. So the idea of that Pekol is probably a title just like Abimelech. These are titles for positions in Philistines. Isaac, anyway, is surprised when the king approaches him. After all, the, the king told him to go away, right? He expelled him from his land. The king watched as Isaac was denied water unfairly time and again. And, and then as new wells were dug and taken away, the king again just watched that. It's rather ironic. It almost makes you, you can just visualize politicians of this day here when you see Imelech speak in verse 29 and make the claim that Philistines have done nothing but good to you because he just ignores everything that doesn't match that, apparently. He does focus on they have not physically harmed him, at least, and that, that part is true. But like most politicians, Abimelech chooses his words carefully. He employs the term for touch here in verse 29. It's the, the word, same word he used in his, degree, his decree of protection back in verse 11. If you look back in verse 11, Abimelech charged all the people saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So now Abimelech can stand up saying, No one touched you because I didn't allow it. Things might have been done that hindered Isaac's prosperity, things that, that were unfair, unkind, but Abimelech can build his case on Isaac's physical well-being. One thing that, that Moses makes clear, though, for us from the record of this conversation here is that this king, Abimelech, this Philistine king, he recognizes the fact that Yahweh is the one who has blessed Isaac. The, the, the covenant God of Israel, that's the name Abimelech uses Verse 28, we see plainly that Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, has been with you. Your covenant God has been with you and blessed you. The, the king, as pagan as he, he might be, he recognizes that, that any attempt to, to hinder Isaac will be futile because there is a power greater than Isaac that, that's ensuring Isaac's prosperity. Abimelech wants to align peaceably with such a man. He wants peace to reign between them. He, he fears one outright clash with Isaac might bring. Isaac uh, agrees to the covenant with Abimelech. He, he seals it with a feast in the evening, and then in the morning they, they get up and they exchange oaths. After that, Abimelech and his men leave in peace, and there, there's a formal covenant in place now between Isaac and the king of the Philistines. That same day, sometime after Abimelech has left, Isaac's servants come. Remember, we, this, this experience with Abimelech is, is wrapped by Isaac is settling in, in Beersheba. His men begin digging well. Now, on the day that as Abimelech leaves, they return having found water. Verse 32 places the emphasis on the fact that this occurs on the same day. That serves to, to associate the name of the city Beersheba with the well and with the oath. But, but more significantly, this new well, once again, it, it gives us evidence of God's ongoing blessing. No matter where Isaac was forced to dig, 
no matter how often he had to dig. He continually found water in the wilderness because God was with him. Remember, the chapter began in famine. The chapter ends in water. God is faithfully blessing Isaac. Every section of the text, we've seen this theme of blessing. So, so let's consider what is the practical lesson of blessing that we can take from, from this chapter. Having observed the evidence, uh, the response to hostilities created, the continuing placing his faith in the promise of blessing, if we put it all together, the lesson we can take is that we should respond to God's blessing with continued faith in his promises. We should respond with faith. Often one of the most dangerous things to our faith that, that we can face is evidence of blessing. It's one thing to wait for the blessing from God. It's another thing to remain faithful when that blessing arrives. We should respond to God's blessing with continued faith in his promises. As we conclude this afternoon, there, there are two aspects, there are two sides that I want to think about when it comes to, to this practical lesson. One, as we've seen in our text today, blessings from God can result in hostility from the world around us. Those who are receiving the blessings of God can become targets of hostility from those who are re in rebellion against God. Evidence that God is with us can prompt jealousy from those who, who do not have God with them. Evidence that, that God is with us can prompt open animosity from, from those who are in rebellion against God. We, we, we cannot forget that, that our Savior warned us that, that we will be hated because he was hated. Uh, oftentimes, it's evidence of, of God's blessing that, that triggers hatred. When, when that happens, we need to recall the, the model that Isaac presents here. We do not need to defend ourselves. We do not need to fight back. We do not need to protest the unfairness of the situation. We can simply move along, trusting God to remain faithful to all that he has promised. We just keep going about our lives, trusting that God will be faithful to his promises. We, we know from 1 Peter 2.20 that when we suffer for doing right and patiently endure it, not just the suffering, Peter has a second part to it. When we suffer for doing right and patiently endure it, then we find favor with God. We know from 1 Peter 3.16, Peter, remember when we went through Peter, he talks about suffering a lot. 3.16 says when we patiently endure suffering, then we maintain a good conscience before God, and we also know that those attacking us will ultimately be put to shame by God. But that's when we patiently endure, not when we fight back and retaliate. God calls us to respond to animosity with continued faith. We need to trust God, even if the animosity comes, because God is blessing us. So that's one side of, uh, of this idea that we need to hang on to. We should respond to God's blessing with continued faith in his promises, even when that blessing brings animosity from the world around us. There's another side, though, too. We should respond to blessings with faith, when nothing else happens. Frankly, I fear that for many of us, there's more spiritual danger and blessings when, when they're not followed by animosity than when they are. When, when things 
go great following obvious blessings from God. When we experience times of apparent peace in our lives, that's when frequently we, we let our spiritual guard down. We, we simply begin to coast along spiritually. Things are going great. God is blessing. There's no issues. We spend less time in the Bible. We spend less time in prayer. We spend less time in faithful attendance. It's not that we claim these things as being unimportant. It's just we don't feel an urgent need for them because we're experiencing blessing. We feel an urgent need when we're under spiritual bombardment, but when we're not, that urgent feeling goes away. Let's be honest, spiritual coasting really is trusting ourselves rather than trusting God. We wouldn't put it that way. We wouldn't claim that, but that's really what it is. It's trusting in ourselves. Things are going fine. I can handle it at this level. What we need to learn from Isaac this afternoon is that the proper response to blessing, when God gives us that, the proper response is renewed worship. Isaac builds an altar. He settles where he can commune with God on a regular basis. He focuses in on worship when God blesses. In a similar manner, we, we should respond with continued faith, faith that is demonstrated through active worship when blessings bring us peace in life. We should respond to God's blessings with continued faith in His promises. Remember that, that picture of the dress on the internet? It, it demonstrated that, that we don't all perceive things the same way. We, we see things differently even when we look at the very same object. Well, not everyone will look at the blessings that God brings into our lives the same. Some will recognize these blessings as evidence of God's work and respond with jealousy and animosity. Others might see them and just leave us in peace. But, but regardless of how others respond, we're called by God to respond to the evidence of his blessing with continued faith. We should respond to God's blessing with continued faith in his promises. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the afternoon we've been able to spend together. What a joy it is to remember the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and all that has accomplished. I pray, Father, that as we experience not only the, the ultimate blessing of our salvation, but immediate blessings as children of God from you, that you would cause us to be faithful and, and to continue in our faith by simply serving you day by day, worshiping you day by day, magnifying Christ day by day. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.